Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Our guest on this episode of The Resilient Surgeon is Christine Porath, and the topic is connection to each other in the workplace. Christine is an associate professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business, where she has dedicated her academic career to understanding the business and the personal impact of how we treat each other in the workplace, and in particular, how the influence of leaders plays such a huge role in people's happiness and engagement at work. Alan Mullaly is one of the greatest CEOs of our time, having turned Ford Motor Company around from losing 17 billion to becoming profitable and not needing any government bailouts. His approach to leadership is simple, but profound. His very first principle above all others is people first, love them up, and he means it. Our need for human connection is baked into our genes from our origins. When working together and belonging, we're critical for our survival. In our modern world, we've drifted away from this biological imperative, driven by the ethos of individualism, self-sufficiency, and modern technology, all of which have played a huge role in the staggering increase in anxiety, depression, and other mental health problems we are seeing today. Christine took this on as her career because of a direct experience when she landed her dream job at a global athletic brand after completing her business degree. To quote Christine, as I soon discovered, I had walked into an uncivil work culture where bullying, rudeness, and other forms of incivility ran rampant. The actions of a narcissistic, dictatorial boss trickled down through the ranks, and employees felt disconnected and disengaged. Many people left, with some joining competing businesses. I was one of them. This led Christine to study the financial impact of incivility in the workplace, which, as you might have guessed it, is massive. And she documents this and the many solutions to the problem in her award-winning book, Mastering Civility, a Manifesto for the Workplace, which led to many consulting opportunities with Google, the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the Department of Justice, to name a few. And she has written extensively about these topics in Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Now, thankfully, Christine has turned her academic and human eyes to the world of connection in the workplace and its impact, not only on the financial bottom line, but also on our personal bottom line, our sense of belonging, engagement, and being valued. And she's written about her journey in her sensational new book, Mastering Community, 
The surprising ways coming together moves us from surviving to thriving. And the good news is we all don't have to be the CEO like Alan Mulally. We can all individually pay more attention to seeing others at work and at home for the unique human being that they are and not just another cog in the wheel of our daily transactions. It is clear, as Christine says, that how you treat people means everything, whether they will trust you, build relationships with you, follow you, support you, and work hard for you, or not. I am certain we can all remember someone in our lives who made us feel that way. In these incredibly trying times in medicine of rapid change, intense labor shortages, and the rampant burnout and struggles with engagement, Christine's message could not be more timely or important, for it is connection and support of each other that can make all the difference when times are hard. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. I'm here today with Christine Porath, the author of Mastering Civility and Mastering Community, her recent book. And I'm delighted to have her to talk about these two books and the role that our civility and our connection in the workplace plays in such a profound way on our wellness and on our resilience uh, at home and in the workplace. So Christine, welcome and thank you so much for being on the podcast, The Resilient Surgeon today. Thank you so much for having me. Christine, could you tell us a little bit about how you managed to get into this line of thinking and work and what the, what the interests, uh, things, the things that drove you to this area? Sure. Uh, so around the civility idea, it was really my dad who had a heart attack scare. Uh, and he was otherwise a really, you know, healthy, vivacious, athletic guy. And, you know, it was just really kind of a dramatic experience for me. Uh, we mm -hmm. got a call. He was in a hospital. I remember vividly, you know, walking up to the hospital room and seeing him lying there with electrodes strapped to his bare chest. And uh, I think, you know, at the time, I just obviously that was a shock to me. And even though he did a pretty good job of hiding the specifics, I knew that his job was very stressful, meaning the leaders he worked with, the toxic leaders were, you know, quite uh, a lot to handle. And at the time, I really assumed he was an unlucky soul. You know, mm -hmm. he was an outlier. This did not happen to many people at all. But just within a couple of years, I scored what I thought was my dream job, 
working in sports management and marketing. And I had had a great experience as an intern at their headquarters, but when I went to work for a subsidiary of theirs, uh, it was really toxic. And I, although I was not on the receiving end very often, I saw what it did to people and I saw how it affected and rippled through the community at work, but also how people took it home with them. And I just felt like it was really sad that we spend so much of our lives in these workplaces and how we could and should really do better. And it may have been my economics background, but I really kind of wanted to set out and, you know, show as objectively as possible what are the costs of these kind of, you know, negative, bad behaviors in the workplace and how can we build cultures that where people really thrive and how that Mm -hmm. is helpful to, to people, to organizations, to hospitals, to patients, things like that. And so that's great. Now that, that, that was prior to your academic career and your PhD, correct? Yes, it sent me back to go get the PhD because I realized that if I really wanted to have an impact, um, that would be the best route. And I was excited about that. I had almost gone on in economics, but I really didn't want to spend my life just on the quantitative stuff. (laughs) I wanted, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I kind of, I, in a way, I really was lucky because I found my calling through this work experience. And yeah. Uh, so that was a meaningful path for me. Yeah. And you know, that, that calling, as you say, I mean, it's often through adversity that we find what makes us tick, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the, the beauties, it's a massive beauty of your work. And that is, you know, you had your economics degree, so you were interested in new, the world of money and Mm -hmm. business. And then you had that experience and then you took your PhD. And what is so great about your work is you actually have studied this. So you're not just up there waving the flag saying, oh, we need to be nice to each other, right? And it's so important that we're nice to each other. You've actually studied the impact of incivility in the workplace economically and on the bottom line of organizations. And I think it would be very useful for you to talk about that, the impact on one person that's treated rudely and the data and what that shows. Yeah, so what we have found is that when someone is treated rudely, uh, or even just witnesses it for that matter, but particularly when they experience it, uh, people have a very tough time concentrating. Um, You know, working memory operates a lot slower. Mm -hmm. People make a lot more errors. Uh, People are far less creative, uh, three times less helpful to anyone else, not just the, the rude person. Uh, and they perform far worse. So cognitively operate at about 33% worse than if you hadn't experienced that incident. Yeah, and you know, you've just got to reflect and think about a time when someone kind of was not nice to you or, or said something. And all of us, I can assure you, have had an experience where that just lingers and it will linger long into the future even, right? Yeah, I think that was one of the surprises for me. I I had seen it some in the sports management world where, you know, early in the morning, working out before, let's say the owner entered a gym where, you know, we thought we were on our own, so to speak, uh, you know, how he said something rudely and it would set everyone off. (laughs) And then the whole place, the whole place. place. 
but particularly the person, you know, kind of the manager of this performance institute. And you could see the ripple effects, you know, people just weren't quite themselves as they were coaching athletes, you know, in the cafeteria, there was a certain sharpness to their tone Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. how they commented to others. And, and so it just naturally flowed where people caught kind of this virus, so to speak, throughout the day. Uh, And unfortunately, I don't think we often recognize what's setting us off or, you know, the fact that we are a little bit more stressed, we're more on edge, we're more annoyed or frustrated, and we're taking it out on others in, you know, perhaps smaller ways, but, but ways that affect them and how they treat others. So it's a profound ripple effect and it it gets at really, and I'm just saying something you obviously know, but just to highlight our social nature as human beings. I mean, we're wired to be connected, to be a team, so to speak, you know, going back to the, you know, prehistoric days. And, and I think there's a tendency to deny these things Mm -hmm. internally on the part of a lot of us, you know, that no big deal, you know, I can get over it and all that stuff, but it's, it, it is much deeper than simply the cognitive, you know, sort of like no big deal, uh, you know, the impact of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely saw that in my dad, you know, and the Mm -hmm. fact that I think, um, and maybe this happens more with men than women, I don't know, but uh, Robert Sapolsky at Stanford has written a lot about kind of the effect of stress and particularly on people's health and how these little things like, you know, the the thousand paper cuts that really lead to cancer or lead to a heart attack or lead to you know, major health consequences. So I love his work and, and yeah. on, on that. Yeah. And if anybody's interested, why, why zebras don't get ulcers, I think is the name of his book, right. That highlights all that. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought Christine as a way of illustration, I actually read from a 360 degree review that I participated in. It was a program that I developed for the residents when I was a program director of residency of the general surgical residency. And I participated and I had a 360 done of me. And here, here are the results. Uh, I, and I'm, I'm going to preface and state it categorically. I'm going to read a few good things just so everybody doesn't have a terrible impression of me. All right. <laughs> so visionary, inspiring, charismatic, willing to take risks, let them operate on me anytime, kind to staff, innovator, fiercely loyal, high expectations of himself and those around him. So those are the verbal comments of people. Now, the next round is things to work on or areas for improvement. Could listen more, can bulldoze bulldoze over others' concerns, could be more patient, can bull over people, can be dictatorial to dissenting opinions, a force to be reckoned with. And of course, at the time I was like, yeah, 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 you know, I don't know. But then there was one comment, one written comment, which really kind of struck home. And here it is. Dr. Mattis is simultaneously harsh and largely unyielding unless one is in near total agreement with him. Nevertheless, his overwhelming popularity is a testament to the potency of his personal strengths. In some ways, he seems almost ruthless in his pursuit to make us strong, leaving a trail of somewhat crushed personalities, which I think he believes is good for us. One peer put it perfectly. He's like an abusive boyfriend who you absolutely adore, but who you can never be sure won't slap you. The biggest travesty is that I don't think Dr. Mattis is aware of this at all. And I, I wasn't, 
at the time. Now, of course, at the time, I thought, you know, that's just an outlier. You know, outliers happen, no big deal. But later on, through a variety of, for a variety of reasons, I thought I should look at this a little more carefully. And I read the comments to my children. And I figured they would be the best people to make a judgment on that. And after I read it to them, here are the following comments from uh, th three of my children. Well, four of them. Maya, my daughter, said, oh, yeah, that's when you were in your dictator phase. My son, Max, said he couldn't tell me anything. I knew it would. He All I knew I would hear is buck up, move past it. This is nothing. My son, Mike, said the slap sentence was perfect, essentially unapproachable. And my son, Sam, who's a deep introvert, said, yep. <laughs> and so that that's the situation. And I, I was so stunned by their responses that I undertook it as a personal project to change uh, that aspect of myself. I was really unaware of it. I was sort of aware of it, but I thought it was a strength mm -hmm. and I didn't think it was a problem. So what how, what are your reflections around that? How does how does this play into this whole world of civility and, and the workplace culture? It's probably my greatest learning, quite honestly, the fact that I started this work kind of, you know, feeling like there were some real jerks in the workplace and we needed mm -hmm. to improve things. And uh, where I've landed is that I think most of this actually stems from a lack of self-awareness. And right. this dovetails really nicely with a collaborator and friend of mine, Tasha Yurik's work, who has found mm -hmm. that 95% of people believe that they're self-aware. So they're like you, you know, they're smart, talented and so forth. And they figure, you know, I've, I've done well and gotten far and I've tried to be, you know, um, I tried to learn along the way. I think I have a pretty good sense of my strengths and weaknesses, but what she found is that only 10 to 15% of people actually are self-aware. And so, you know, right. She jokes that 80% of us are fooling ourselves on any yeah. given day. Yeah. And I, I think that that's where it comes in. And that it, I give you a lot of credit because one, this is incredibly difficult information to often take in, um, particularly if we've been operating under the premise right. of different, you know, beliefs. And then two, to actually, um, in your case, you actually went farther and got more details, which I think is great. And we do encourage people to get it not only from the workplace, but often there are parallels in people's personal lives. And so I think that's great that you got that information, um, maybe took a deeper dive and then set up right. a kind of hone in on what can I improve and, and can I check in with people uh, to kind of help hold me accountable for where I want to be and who I want to be on a daily basis. Yeah. And after that, I've become very uh, almost obsessed with feedback now. Mm. And, and I, I can, I can take it with a grain of salt. I, all feedback isn't necessarily good, but I'm, I'm very, very keen on understanding how I'm coming across to the best of my ability. And what you said is incredibly true about in that book by Tasha Urich is, is just sensational, sensational. I, I highly recommend it. But, um, you know, I was, I was somebody that was always reading about leadership and, mm -hmm. and you know, self-improvement and all these things. And yet this was going on under the surface. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up because I was like in the lane mm -hmm. of thinking about these things. And yet here was this aspect of myself that, you know, surfaced only through a 360. And, and I just think it highlights so 
importantly, you know, the, what you talk about in your book, small, small behaviors and the ripple effect and the, you know, the importance of our small behaviors when we think we're doing okay. Can you talk a little bit about that and the, the small behaviors that we can do at work that make such a difference for, for ourselves and for others? Yeah, well, I think one of the powerful things that we've learned, particularly in social network studies, where, you know, you might, for example, survey the department that you work in and ask everyone, um, you know, how energizing or de-energizing it is to work with you or how civil or less than civil you are. And what we find is that those um perceptions of you and how it feels to work with you, uh, they affect how you behave towards others. And then again, that tends to have a contagion effect. Um, mm. one, one of the hospital studies that I love so much is from Oshner Healthcare System, where they came up with the 10-5 way. And so it was if you were within 10 feet of someone, you were to make eye contact and smile. And if you were within five feet, you were to say hello. And what they found is that civility scores rose, uh, patient satisfaction and patient referrals though also rose. And I think, you know, that the smart behaviors that you just mentioned go a long way to uh, changing the way that we feel in the workplace on a daily basis, but also then how we are, you know, behaving towards others in, in these small moments. Yeah. So I really got to drill in on that a little bit because it's so crucial. And I, and I can hear potentially some of my colleagues groaning <laughs> when they hear, okay, in 10 feet, I'm supposed to acknowledge somebody. And then in five feet, I'm supposed to say hi. I mean, do I look like a robot, right? Or this is, I mean, that's how they might perceive it. And I, right. I would have been one of those individuals in the past. Now, having said that, once I understood the science and the power of gratitude as an example, uh, you know, my wife is a high risk, now retired, but high risk obstetrician. And she was in the lane that I was. And, you know, we tended to have a rather transactional approach to our relationship and just, you know, hustling and getting things done and not acknowledging uh, each other for the work we're doing and the gratitude piece. And so when I realized what the gratitude piece was, um, and I started very awkwardly saying thank you to her, you know, for little things. And it felt weird because it was unfamiliar to me. And it, it just felt I wasn't, I felt like I quote, wasn't being myself, right? Well, it transformed our relationship. I mean, it's, it's literally one of the most powerful things that we've done. And in a similar vein, I took it upon myself as a habit to, like when I'm out in public, like at the grocery store I go to, I, I look at people's names, I call them by their name. And at the, when I started doing this, it was kind of like, eh, but it changed. I mean, I love going to the grocery store now. Yeah. I know people, you know? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Just, just how powerful these little things are in terms of not only our own health, but the other people that we're influencing. Yeah, I think my favorite example of that kind of thing, meaning um, small behaviors that can transform mm -hmm. and even a turn around a global organization really stem from another uh, friend, Doug Conant, who took over for Campbell Soup when it was not doing well at all. Uh, they had lost half their market share, sales were declining, they had laid off a lot of people. A Gallup manager said it was the least engaged organization that they had ever measured. Oh and my. 
Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it gets better. When Doug drove up to work his first day, he said it was surrounded by a barbed wire fence and there were guard towers in the parking lot. At um, Campbell's Soup Company. Campbell's Soup. Yeah, this was nice. in Camden, New Jersey. He had not interviewed there. He had interviewed at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia. So. Of course. <laughs> so this was, this was really new to him. Um, he he yeah. knew that they were not doing well, but literally when you see it and then when he stepped inside, he could feel it, you know, and even visually employees weren't receiving discounts in the cafeteria. I mean, there was just a lot that he picked up on right, right. away that, yeah. that didn't feel good. And yet within five years, he really turned things around. Within nine years, they were setting all-time performance records, racking up awards, best place to work, most ethical company, most diverse company. So I asked him, how did you do this? I mean, culture change is hard. And he said, well, you know, on day one, I told them I was going to, we had to turn things around. I was going to be tough on standards, but we were going to do it with civility. I was going to walk the talk. I expected my leaders to. And, and so it really, for him, he said, boiled down to being tough-minded on standards, but tender-hearted with people. And mm -hmm. similar to what you just described, he said it really boiled down to touch points, you know, these brief mm -hmm. daily interactions he had with people. And whether that was in the cafeteria or in the hallways or in meetings, you know, he defined these touch points as less than two minutes and you have them you know, constantly throughout the day. And so he would really attempt to listen very attentively, you know, uh, paraphrase and kind of show that he was right. listening. Right leverage right. any expertise that he had, and then close by saying, how can I help? And yeah. this, these touch points he credits for you know, turning things around. What was neat about Doug, uh, to your point also, he had these little things that he became known for. And one of those things was he hand wrote over 30,000 thank you notes while CEO of Campbell's. 30,000. 30,000. He yeah. averaged over 10 a day. He would do them, you know, at various points and he personalized them. And he said he'd see them hanging up, you know, as he traveled globally to different manufacturing plants and so forth. And what was interesting was a good friend of mine that knew this story and had read it. She told me several months ago, she was uh, on a plane behind a gentleman who was bragging about the company that he worked for and how 15 wow. years ago, he re, as a lowly salesperson received this wonderful thank you note from the CEO and how he is so proud and loves, you know, working for Campbell's. <laughs> and she immediately knew, you know, what he was doing. Yeah, of course, to. of course. But it was, you know, I think what we don't recognize, and I think the pandemic has really highlighted this is, we don't get that much appreciation, much less no. maybe yeah. personalized or, you know, um, and so it really matters. Uh, and if we can do those things, we do lift people up throughout the day and they pass that forward. They show up differently. You know, my yeah. guess, yeah. my guess is those people treat the next people online at your grocery store differently or. No, it, it, it's true. Yeah. I've got a picture of me with all the butchers there. Uh, they're Aww. like a little family. They're like a family to me now. And I wrote a, a very extensive gratitude note to the owner of, of the store about the people behind the meat counter because they're so extraordinary. 
And they, they said, nobody's, I mean, literally I came in the next day, I was like some rock star, you know, <laughs> no, the power of it is just staggering, yeah. you know, uh, and th they've never forgotten it. Believe me. I mean, it's really remarkable, but you know, it, it, it's kind of two sides of that coin and the feeling coin, I'll call it, you know, and you've referred to feeling many, many times in this conversation. And I know myself, you know, I, I used to actually think, I don't know why people have to have emotions so much. And, you know, we're just here to get the job done, just do it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, we are human beings with feelings and those things drive behavior far more than anything else, right? And so you talked about the, the pernicious and lasting effects of, of something negative, but look at that individual who had that note from Campbell's mm -hmm. Soup what, 15 years later? Yeah, yes. Can you recall it as if it was as, as clear in his mind as some really negative event, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that is the power of these, these things to really make a difference, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. extraordinary, yeah. And, you know, you're getting, you're, you kind of dove into the leadership thing. And one of the things about the Doug Conant, is that the right way to say it? Yeah, thing is he said, uh, it was, I, I guess I put it together as kind of a virtuous circle, right? commit to your people and they will commit to you. If I remember that from your book, is that yeah. correct? Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And it reminds me of another superstar CEO and Alan Mullaly, mm -hmm. who was a CEO of Ford and turned that company around from the depths of almost extinction. And I love his uh, really two-part framework. Love your, love your people up, love them up, and set the highest standards of excellence, all right? Mm -hmm. And, and this, gets, this gets at something that I'd love to have you talk about, and that is, you know, we, I think in the world of surgery and many business worlds, we conflate being tough and, you know, pressurizing and demanding and all that stuff with, with excellence and performance. But I think that's a, an inappropriate uh, linkage. Do you wanna talk about that and then also dip into the radical candor and the, the the world of trust and relationships and being able to achieve high performance? Sure. So I think, you know, one person that comes to mind with this, and I do think it's challenging naturally yeah. for leaders to think yeah. about or organizations for that matter, to think about how do we balance competitiveness? We need it, you know, in Doug's case, he needed it to survive. Um, and yet balance it with a sense of, let's say, community or connection. And yeah. in so many businesses, you know, those are seen as, you know, negatively correlated. Like, you know, right. probably, you know, we, you want people to achieve as a team, but you're measuring them as individuals. So how- And, you know, as a surgeon, you, you've got to have your shit together in the operating room. You know, there, there's, there's no margin for like, being less than there, you know? So this is the, the inherent tension in this, in, in this enterprise. Yeah, so I think it's incredibly challenging for most people, uh, but I think when you can achieve the balance, you really can achieve extraordinary results and mm -hmm. uh, you will both attract and retain top talent as well, which, you know, in the era of the great resignation and I think people rethinking you know, priorities and choices and life is short. Where do we want to spend it? And how, who do we want to spend it with? Um, they're right, going right. to be choosing 
you know, healthcare systems or teams or, you know, organizations, communities that they want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's ideal if people consider both, you know, the, the competitive nature of things or competence and community as how do we get these to go together versus, um, mm-hmm you know, it's one or the other. And I think I had a really unique experience this past year, and I'm excited to go back this fall season for University of North Carolina at Chapel Hills soccer coach, Anson Dorrance. And he's mm-hmm. someone in this Mastering Community book, but- uh, they Great have- story, great story too. Really fantastic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I just learned so much from him and the culture that they established, but the Mia Hams of the world really articulate it best saying, you know, she really um, became the player and the person she feels like she could be because it was such a cauldron of competition. And this is every day, every, you know, nowadays sports is a little different, but every step is measured, you know, I mean, literally everything is on bulletin boards. It's in Excel sheets that, you know, they're wearing trackers and they're, you know, back of their bras and, so they're over almost overwhelmed with data if if they mm-hmm. let it be that way. Um, and yet they live like a family off the field. You know, they support one another, they pick each other up, they care for each other. Uh, they actually, one of the things that I think helps with this is they have 13 core values and the players rate each other on these um, three times a year. So part of what I'm getting at is like this peer data about how you're showing up and others contributing, like in your 360 example, that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In, in their case, I love the fact that the core values are not tied to who they are as a player. It's who they are right. as a person, right. which I think yeah. is, again, all the better. Because oftentimes we have these values that are slapped up on a wall or a website, but we don't have leaders living them. They may not even know no. them. And so there's nothing on the ground. Yeah. And so I think you, you want to really make these come to life in different ways. And so the peer ratings in UNC's case, at least have helped a lot, but I think this idea of it's not either, or it's both, you know, yeah. Yeah. So the competence and the competition has to be there, but the community is at the bedrock of who we are and who we want to be. And, and that's not going to change. And that is where the nuclear fuel comes from. Mm-hmm. Is that, would you agree? Absolutely. Because I think people yeah. are making choices based on this connection or community piece. Like they, they talk about um, human growth theory or, and, or even human needs theory. And there's three main pillars. And one would be around choice, or you could think of it as autonomy. You know, I'm empowered. I get mm-hmm. to choose, right. do I want to do this? Right. Um, and, and what, what are my goals and, and so forth? Um, a second would be competence related. Uh, and so part of that is getting the feedback and the development, like your 360 was helpful in that regard. Um, and then the third piece is this idea of community or connection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, I think, missing for a lot of people. And uh, again, I think the pandemic has highlighted that for a lot of us, um, and led to people, you know, perhaps reprioritizing um, what they want. Yeah, you know, it, I think it'd be instructive to look at the 
UNC example with a little more granularity, if we could. Sure. Because, uh, you know, in reading about that coach, and I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but uh, he he was a ruthless competitor. Yes. If as I understand it, I mean this this no take no prisoners, right? I mean this this guy he was serious and but if you could go through some of the how they how he actually did it with the the values and then having players rate each other and and just some of that process because it's so illustrative of how somebody married those two things of outstanding results with community and it led him to be the most winning women's soccer coach of all time nobody's even close right right yes yeah yeah so he actually stole the competition piece in a way from another unc uh famous coach dean smith who measured everything at practice he had you know just uh small army of managers that were measuring every, you know, rebound and drill and free throw and so forth. And Anson was mesmerized about how organized this, these practices mm -hmm. were, but in particular, how everything, you know, there was all this feedback, right? And Dean Smith used the feedback to make decisions, um, you know, to playing time, all of that. And he really decided like, wow, there's a way to measure and kind of, you know, make things competitive now. So it, everything is rated, all the fitness tests, all the, you know, steps, all the agility, um, all, you know, there's in what they call in-stat performance. So you have kind of these, uh, what we would call more objective ratings that come from people that their whole job is to rate a soccer players, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, games and so forth. So you have that, you have every drill at practice is, you know, there are numbers associated with how you received a ball, how you, you know, struck a ball in terms of shots on goal, um, heading every granularity, <laughs> incredible granularity. Yeah. Incredible and we granularity. can do that in surgery too. I mean, you know, yeah. the same thing. Yeah. The parallels there. And you're yeah. an athlete, so you you know what you're talking about here. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and uh, so you have all like you can imagine an Excel sheet with just literally you know all these columns, mm -hmm. and they get tabulated, mm -hmm. and so you have totals. One of the neat things is um, that he came upon, which is another kind of player influenced rating, is player drafts. So any small sided games where you're choosing teammates you have where you were selected and how you perform, meaning your wins. And is there mm. a difference, a, a gap, positive or negative? You know, are you over or under? Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. So all of that is, is uh, tabulated. But so that I would say, you know, they're getting all this feedback, but part of what he's also holding them responsible for is living the core values, which is player ratings of one another on 13 different or what I would call like almost character type elements. So, you know, things like, well, there's no whining, but tough, classy, positive, you know, things like that. And the positive one in particular really jumped for me this year because, you know, when a player gets hurt, star players, uh, you know, players on the national team that may get injured immediately, how are they showing up? Are they showing up? Which they do, but, but like, yeah. who, who yeah. are they on the sidelines? Are they helping others? Right. 
you know, are they right. a positive influence or are they pulling everyone down? Because, you know, they're in many ways, not just their career, but their lives have, you know, feel like they've just been torn, torn apart. And right. uh, it was so impressive, the positive nature of this. And so they have kind of, you know, three winners in each category, so to speak, but also um, resilience and things like that, grit. Uh, then you have to average above a three across all these values. It's on a one to five scale. If you're lower than a three, he really doesn't want you part of the program. They're happy to try oh, to find oh, you another oh. home. So, and even you if you're a superstar, even if you're a superstar, and there are national yeah. team players, play, you know, that that get shipped yeah. elsewhere. Um, but this is, I mean, he wants to see people improve. You know, I don't think he's looking to cut them off short-sightedly, but. The idea is you see these numbers and you see, and it's color coded, you know, like if you're falling in the pink zone, you're in trouble. And, and you, they actually only show kind of, um, they don't show everyone on every value on the one-on-one -on -one meetings. Cause if you're above a three, his attitude is you're doing it pretty consistently and that's good. Right. right? I mean, you can always on a one to five, one, one to five. five. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I love that. And I think it's really important in terms of people are responsible for living these values. He also, I mean, this may be getting into the weeds a bit, but one, oh, of, good. He, one of the things that he learned along the way uh, is that people tend to remember things better, associating them with quotes and meaning and so forth. And so there's a often very long quotes that, that kind of demonstrate living the value. So for example, I I think it's for positive. There's a long quote from Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Which gets it at that. And, and so the players come in and each year they're responsible for memorizing three of them, but the, the players recall these. So a lot of times, like in one case, one of the players who was uh, an older professional was having a hard time with the coach and everything and was suffering. And she texted Anson and let her know, like she was remembering that quote to kind of get her through these particular challenges. And I think that shows what he hopes happens, which is, you know, it, these are really a, become a part of who you are and mm -hmm. are helpful to you, not mm -hmm. only, you know, during your time there, um, and not only on the field, he really cares about character first and then academic second and then mm -hmm. soccer third. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is an incredibly competitive environment. You know, I was very curious. So I was asking players, like, how do you handle all this feedback? Because it's, I mean, I'm used to organizations where people are getting very, Ministerial. very, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, performance reviews are once a year and they're kind of trivial at that, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and often misguided even, I, I would say, you know, yeah. the, the way they're set up and the framing and, and all that, you know. And Marcus Buckingham is a big anti-feedback, inappropriate feedback uh, advocate, yeah. Yeah, so I it's remarkable and especially given their age too, you know, as a 17, 18 year old, you know, yeah. 22, yeah. 23. And so, but I do think that, you know, they've found ways to figure out what works for me. How much am I going to take in? How am I going to kind of handle it? But it's all in the spirit of, you mentioned radical candor, which is we care personally. So we're going to challenge you directly. 
um, he'll ask them what they want to achieve. And so then it's, how can I help you? And so one of the things that I, I didn't talk enough about in Mastering Community, but I'm working on a book with Anthony Dorms, this coach, is the idea of, fantastic. yeah, he's, he is That's fantastic. Great. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is so, would be such a great thing for people to learn from is in these one-on-one meetings, player development, it's all about, he's their ally. So he's on their side. So he's looking at the data with them and mm-hmm. kind of asking them, okay, what are you taking away from this? What do you want to do with it? How can I help? Right, so, right. So it's, you know, to your point, you looked at the 360 and you said, I, I want to be this person. <laughs> I want to right. take this comment. Yeah. You know, this is what I ultimately want to achieve. And then his attitude is, okay, how do you want me to help you get there? You know, yes. and the player yes. is the one that's, that's determining, I really want to play for the national team, or I really want to play pro. Okay. What do you think you need to do to get there? And, you know, usually right. some of these things are fairly obvious in the sense of, because you do have this data, right. And you see where your gaps are, um, even on this team and where you need to be. And he has the luxury of, because he's, um, done this so well for so many people, meaning if you end up at the top of the cauldron, let's say you're in the top five performers each year, you pretty much know you have a shot at the national team. You're definitely top 10 probably can go pro. So it's a matter of how do you climb? And that's also nice. And this is, I think, very relevant to healthcare organizations is you have stories about how others have walked that path, because the truth is, The superstars, you know, that we know by name, they didn't start out at one or even five. You know, they may have come in at 13 and then gone to eight, five, and one. And so for him, he refers to it as the never ending ascension. And so it's it's Mm -hmm. about climbing this, you know, kind of cauldron, if you want, or ladder. But the players really have to own this and they decide also, you know, kind of what they're willing to do to get there. And his attitude, and I love this idea of being an ally, because I think that that would help a lot of leaders and managers and organizations. It's not, you have to do this and you're bad because you achieved this. It's what do you want? You know, where do you want to go in your career? What do you want to do? Okay. Here's where you're at. Here's where others are at that are in a similar position. How do we close that gap? How can I help you close that gap? And so I think that people tend to respond and and research shows that people would be far less defensive, far more motivated, uh, and probably much more likely to succeed if that's the attitude that you come at it with. You care personally about them. And, you know, in many ways, this is obvious, I think, in this particular case, Um, but then, you know, you challenge people directly and in his case, the data is very helpful. All right. Because he has data, not just personal opinions. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the, what you're talking about is the milieu of a trusted, caring relationship. And within that milieu is the opportunity to really influence somebody with radical candor, with clear feedback about what's going on because people are more receptive at that point. Right. And that's, this is the magic ingredient. And if we just go back for a minute to my, uh, 
reading my 360 to my children. Mm-hmm. All right. And that, so I read that to them. That's probably eight years ago now. All right. And here's, I, I wanted to get this uh, Father's Day card that my oh. daughter wrote to me. Okay. And she had some struggles. Uh, and she wrote this card to me. And here, here are a few of the comments. And this is not to, in any way, there's no hubris involved or anything like that. It's a demonstration of how I took ownership of that as you talk about, and you talk about ownership of these things in your books. Mm-hmm. It, it really is incumbent upon us. And one of your phrases that I love is, who do you want to be in the world? You know, mm-hmm. And I'd like you to expand on that. But here's, here's what my daughter said, Maya. You learned, you checked in, you pushed, you challenged, and you hugged again and again. You were the father parent I needed and so much more. And, you know, I created, and I really had learned how to create a very safe space of understanding and connection with her and patience. And then I've learned as a parent how to dip in when it's appropriate and needed, you know, with Mm -hmm. that radical candor. And, you know, it's not easy. It's very difficult at times to net, especially with somebody that's very close to you or in any circumstance, frankly, you know, to, to hold those two things uh, in, in tandem, you know, mm-hmm. and the wisdom sort of to know when, when it's right to dip in and to talk about things. It's, it's a hard kind of balancing act, but I, I thought it was a good demonstration of this principle of warmth plus radical candor that you're, you're talking about. And, if you want to talk a little bit about who do you want to be and any reflections you sure. have about any of that, I'd love to hear them. Sure. Yeah. Um, one thing that came to mind as you were talking about that, Kim Scott, who's the wonderful author right. of Radical Candor and right. this whole concept, um, she actually talked about it also as compassionate candor. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't have sold as well in terms of the book, she claims, but I love right. this spirit of, and I think you just articulated it so well in your daughter, compassionate candor, right? So it's, if you approach it with that spirit, uh, I think that, you know, you and your family in your case, or your community is going to be far better off. So I think that for me, I'm holding on to that. And, you know, if I'm having a conversation with a leader or what have you, that may be you know, uh, something that hopefully sticks for them and becomes Mm -hmm. a way Mm -hmm. that you step into these conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, um, the who do you want to be thing, uh, really, for me, it was very memorable, because the day that I got tenure, I wrote on a (laughs) post-it, who do you want to be, and just stuck it up against uh, my computer and Um, you know, I wanted to hold on to that. Like that was my big takeaway because uh, our worlds are very weird. You know, none of my family and most of my friends do not understand tenure. And yet for so many years, you know, it seemed like that was so important. And my, my big takeaway though, was the idea behind it is that I'm supposed to have more choice now and I'm supposed to do the work that I feel like is most important and should drive my time and my energy. And so I wanted to kind of make it front and center for myself, uh, as, I see. You, know, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I also, I loved that question because for me, it was also something that I could use in small moments throughout the day. You know, how do you respond? Beautiful. Yes. To a, 
challenging colleague, you know, mm -hmm. how do you respond to that email? How do you respond to that request? How do you make a decision? Is it worth, you know, traveling across country to do X, you know, is it, um, or is my time better spent on something else, you know, depending mm -hmm. on the kind of influence uh, that I'd like to have and the person that I want to be, you know, whether that's to those closest to me or the broader reach, why I think I'm here, you know, kind of, uh, we, we talked about earlier, your calling. And so right. I just, um, for whatever reason, that question just came to me and I wanted to make it more prominent in my own life. Um, and I, then when I was writing the book, I really, for me, I felt like it was a good organizing framework in part for that topic, because I do think that we're challenged so many times in our touch points, you know, our, we talked about it as positives, but I think, you know, we have all these moments in the day where we may not have choice, you know, even who we're working on on surgical teams or what have you. And so how are you going to handle that? Um, yeah. You know, yeah especially if you're a leader uh, or, you know, leading the surgery, leading a medical team, um, you know, what kind of role model are you going to be for others? And, and what's the kind of, you know, um, what are you going to pass along in your community? You know, what are people going to catch from you? So that's where that stemmed from. And, you know, I think it pretty much holds for the Mastering Community book too, because part two of the book is really about, how do you, and you started off with such a deep dive into the self-awareness conversation. I feel like that's the bridge because part one was really about how do you set up a culture for your community or like what are the levers that you as a leader can use to build a community where people don't just survive, but hopefully they thrive, or at least they're on that path, you know, like with the right. radical standard right. and things like that. Right, right. Or, part two of the book. And I, I really, I hoped that, that it, the two hung together. I didn't honestly know if I was doing too much. It's a longer book, which I probably shouldn't say, but it's, no, um, no, I have comments about that. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I really just believe that so much of, uh, and this is how I teach it too, is, you know, who do you want to be in terms of bringing your best self to your community? So it's what you got at with your 360 and the self-awareness that you cultivated through that it's that's going to help you show up differently and you know there are other chapters like the physical well-being the recovery the mindset because I do think that all of that affects you and if you work on those pieces it provides a better chance that you're going to show up in a more positive mindful um way where you have a better effect on people. But I, I wanted people to kind of own, because especially nowadays, I think it's easy with all going on in society. It's been negative for quite a while that it's easy to kind of point the finger and say like, this community sucks. You know, I do not, <laughs> this is toxic right. or right. he's a terrible leader kind of thing um, versus, you know, how do I own like my little world at least? And how do I um, bring my best self to that so that our team has the best chance to win on any given day. Um, and we all get the benefits of that. So uh, that was the part that I really wanted to make sure that it wasn't disconnected. And I'm honestly, I'm not sure how well I did that, but to me, the two, and I, I am challenged to articulate it well, but to me, they're connected. So. Well, 
yeah, I have clear comments on that. And, and first of all, the book is is literally masterful in outlining that. Mm. Um, you know, the levers that you can press as a leader in the beginning, but then the ownership piece, because we do all have to have ownership of our own responsibility to show up properly, to take care of ourselves. And, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about sleep and exercise and all these things. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in fact, these things have a profound ripple effect on how you show up in the world. One hour of sleep, less. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what is the term you used? Uh, the impact of that on... on uh, you become a social repellent. Uh, social social repellent, you know. And, and I had Christopher Barnes on the podcast last year who, who studied leadership and, and, and lack of sleep and the huge impact of that. So I love the fact that you have parsed it out like that. But not only that, what's so great about your work is, you know, you're, you're an academic. So you actually, you know, you, you live on data. All right. Mm -hmm. So you're not just blowing smoke, but you give very, very concrete, you know, strategies in your books. It's very clear. It's not something you read and you think, well, okay. Yeah. And then you come away with, it. I mean, if you want to do it, the recipes are in your book. They're very mm -hmm. clearly in your book. So I, I, I think it's a tremendous accomplishment. Thank you so and, much. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is, this is the Resilient Surgeon podcast, and it's about wellness and all that. And I, I hope that the conversation today has shown just how much community and the way and the, the mood at work and how we show up plays such a vital role in our overall well-being. You know, uh, it's, it's just it's a big deal. It's not just about exercising. You know, mm -hmm. it's about all those little ways that you show up and and you know, it kind of it leads me to another piece here, and and that is, we may encounter or we do encounter people who are not pleasant, who are rude, incivil, you know, all these things. And in a sense, I hold a lot of compassion for those individuals because I was obviously, in my own way, one of those individuals. You know, uh, but it's not just because I was one of them. But when I reflect back about my, my life. I mean, there's so many forces at play that lead up to that moment of the 360, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my own big five personality profile uh, and, and, and the like. And, you know, my sensitivity to negative emotions is quite low, but other people's, you know, in the neuroticism layer of this, you know, it can be very high and they're very prone to reactivity and, and negative emotions. And that can infect other people around them. And then of course, you know, there's the culture uh, of our families mm -hmm. and how we're treated and how that becomes embedded as a habitual way of being potentially, even in smaller, big ways. And then, you know, the work culture, you know, and I grew up in surgery in the early years when basically, you know, it was like, you know, slavery uh, in essence. And, uh, you know, you were hammered all the time. And so these are legacy elements. And uh, what are your thoughts around that? And it, it to me, it just proves how your concept of who do you want to be, make a decision, a conscious decision, and then do the work to get there, right? So yeah. what, what are your thoughts yeah. around any of that? Yeah, I love it. I mean, one story that came to mind was the first time I was ever teaching executive education, and I wasn't sure how this was going to go. I thought they were crazy for bringing me in for four hours with chief hospital administrators. So this was a, a healthcare program. <laughs> and um you know, it was interesting because at the break I had, you know, a physician, you know, pull me aside literally. And he said, you know, I, I don't think you understand how important this stuff is, you know, in our world. 
Um, but then someone else shared that they had a physician. They had just started 360 feedback. So similar to your path. And he had, you know, kind of a military like tone, uh, his mm -hmm. voice, but mm -hmm. he, he was so hurt because he said like, I was just training people the way that I was trained. Exactly. And people thought, you know, they did not want to work with him. They had very negative things to say about him. And you know, you could tell that he, it, the good news was he really took this to heart and he started changing and it started with small actions, like literally, you know, some of the 10, five small, small yes. yeah, saying hello when he came in, you know, asking how people were. I mean, it was literally like baby steps. And, and that's what you got to do is baby steps. Just like I did with my wife. I, yeah. I was over there meekly saying, well, thank you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it felt so weird, but continue. I, I yeah, yeah. remind people. Yeah. So, but he, you know, he turned it around, but I thought it was, it just, it stuck with me. The idea of he had no idea. And he literally right. said, I was just training them the way that I was trained. He thought mm -hmm. he was mm -hmm. doing everything he could to give these residents his best. And right. And then, you know, decades later, because he was in his probably, I'm guessing, late 50s by then, um, you know, he found out that he, he was essentially his, his words hated, you know, and yeah. so forth. Yeah. And so I just, I, I, it really stuck with me that, again, if this gentleman could feel this way and not know for so long and, um, you know, have such potential influence and so forth, I mean, it highlighted the self-awareness stuff, but in a in a way that, um, and tone is a fantastic example of we cannot accurately evaluate our tone when we're speaking. So yes. either, I mean, recordings are helpful, that gets at some of it, but the best thing is to your point earlier, the feedback from others, which he learned too. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. really trying to mm -hmm. encourage people to be proactive about that if there aren't systems where they're getting that. And then taking that and acting on it, you know, honing in on these blind spots that we all have. Right. right. We all have. Yeah. And, you know, the important thing to me is if the vast majority of people, it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. It is your fault if you know about it and you don't do anything about it. Because once you're made aware, then you do need to own it. Right. You know, and then, then it becomes your fault. But just like that, that surgeon or that physician until then, I mean, who, who can blame them yeah. for the way he is? You know, we, we end up the way we are through this shocking series of fortuitous arrangements that come upon us in our lives. And it's through no fault of our own that we sort of end up as the person we are uh, mm -hmm. until you can wake up somehow and start taking a look at it in a more uh, self-aware and intelligent way. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I think we're getting close to the end here, Christine, and I want to make sure, is there anything else I wanted to cover here? Um, well, what are we, we're at 11 o'clock. So I guess, you know, in kind of wrapping it up here, I, one of the things that I like about what you weave throughout the book is this idea of kind of being your best self, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's, that's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And, you know, we talk about wellness and resilience and all these things, 
but it's it's sort of a nebulous concept and the idea of being your best self we all sort of intuitively understand what that line is for each of us you know you know when you're in the zone of mm -hmm. being your best self and you know when you're below the line of not being your best self you know and the pie that i've created in terms of the, the world at large in terms of being our best self that makes a difference is things that bring us meaning in our life mm -hmm. right at work at home next one is our individual habits mm -hmm. exercise sleep etc and then the third one is community and culture both at home and at work, you know? And so you, in your, in your work, you've highlighted all of those avenues to being our best self. And, and the two books are just, they're interwoven, you know, mastering civility and mastering uh, community. They're deeply interwoven, but they come at it from a little different perspectives and they're additive. And I love the fact that they are, uh, they, they really are integrated very deeply, I think, you know, and uh, so they're, they're just beautiful, like not only overviews of, of the world at large around civility and community, but also loaded with tactical on the street uh, ways of accomplishing this, you know, and so as you said, just take small steps and, and do the work and I, I just I, I can't uh, thank you enough for you know, your tremendous contribution to this, uh, this whole world uh, of ours and our humanity. It's a big, big deal. Well, thank you so much. That means the world uh, coming from you and people like you doing uh, the, the work to really you know, help save us, really, <laughs> literally. Yeah, no kidding, uh, literally save so, us, yeah. So uh, yeah. I really appreciate that. And it's, it's good fuel for, you know, pushing things forward because, because that is yeah, the goal yes. is to get out, you know, actionable work. And I was very fortunate. I mean, I did not tell my brother's story, which set up the mastering community book and the mighty, but I really right. learned the power of community and helping yeah. us move from surviving to thriving from what they went through um, with my goddaughter, Annabelle, and the idea of you know, other people. feel free to tell it, tell the story. It's wonderful. Just, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, my niece was challenged and they didn't find out until she was two that she had a rare chromosome disorder. And, um, it was then that my brother was learning about kind of, um, what this was like from, it happened to be a PDF file from a decade before with parents' stories, six stories. And, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of it was heartbreaking in terms of mm -hmm. their days and, you know, some of them dealing with 30 to 40 seizures a day, but it also contained stories that were sprinkled in with joy and humor. And he right, figured right. that if, if they could do it, then he and his wife could as well. And um, another parenting challenge kind of came about months later and he, you know, again, turned to Google because it's, it's hard, you know, unless you're living with this for any one physician or expert or, um, you know, to come up with a way to kind of solve the problem, it's a guess, you know, oftentimes, and those things weren't working. And so it was a post that he put out there and a, another parent of a Duke 15 kid, which is what she has um, responded with a very tactical, you know, action oriented 
cut two holes in a tiny sock, put it on her right. left hand, you know, put a, another sock on her other hand so she can't cheat, put her favorite food in the tray, blueberries and, ha you know, and then she had mastered the pincher craft within a month. So yeah, it was, yeah. but his, the idea was forming these um, kind of what has become the largest healthcare community in the world now, but forming almost the idea of dinner parties where you could invite people in, doctors, um, researchers, other parents, patients, and, you know, they would be people that would support you, but they also might have, you know, information, examples, um, those kind of things. But I had the, you know, it was a, it's been a blessing to learn from he and um, my sister-in-law and the mighty community and seeing how helpful they've been to one another. And then, you know, thinking about, because it also, you know, was a little bit like organization by study and how do you build a culture where you're tackling tough things um, and yet, you know, finding ways to, to really support one another. So. Right, that was right. And he, he built that just, I want to just, because these things get lost in the sentences, mm -hmm. the world's largest. Mm -hmm. Okay, can you just elaborate on that? So they went they went from having a child with some challenges mm -hmm. to the mighty. Can you just kind of tell us that yeah. the scale? So uh, he quit his job uh, after you know this was several years in the making. He had a journalist background, and there were a lot of friends that were encouraging him. You know, go do this and. Um, we're not financially independent. So this was going to require taking a big leap. And he had at the time, at least two small children, um, but the third on the way. And so he ended up, you know, kind of finding some consulting gigs and, uh, and quitting his, you know, job. And basically they started this company, a friend had helped build a website, <laughs> which, you know, talk about courage, my gosh. Yeah. 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 Um, but they really believed in the idea and the power of community to come together. And so, um, you know, it was, I mean, he's, he would credit a lot of people that have helped in small ways or big ways, uh, but they moved from a tiny tribe. So we were having little offsites of, you know, 10 people and, and 50 people, the top people would come in and and then what has happened, in particular, the people that it's helping, meaning globally, uh, over several million people now, you know, get emails from them, log on, use the app. Um, but it's really meant to share inspiring stories, share information, support one another. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's continuing to grow. But, uh, of course, the life of an entrepreneur, you also see that, which, you know, we're, we're mm -hmm. wired very differently. Mm -hmm. This is not an easy task. But um, mm -hmm. one, one that, again, the inspiration from the Mastering Community book really came from him and the Mighty, because I saw the potential for what a community or a group of people, you know, could, how coming together really could and these are people that um, are often dealt, you know, some of the most challenging blows and challenging situations, and yet find a way to get not only survive it, but and everyone has their days, but you know, try to push themselves to thriving together. And so, despite it, yeah, yeah, and that, that's the power of having others in your orbit on anything, and. You know, I think as Jordan Peterson, you know, he said it takes a village to organize a mind, you know, and I, I love I love that phrase because, you know, we are not 
born to be isolated you know yeah yeah well i i i hope we through your conversation with me today we've demonstrated the the value uh to ourselves individually of 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 showing up in the right way and to others and i think you know to leave you to leave our uh, our listeners with a, a quote that you have in the book from pericles and and it is the following what you leave behind is not engraved in a stone monument, but is what is woven into the lives of others. And it, honestly, uh, I had to come to that conclusion in my own life, and 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 really understanding that you know through my teaching of surgeons uh, and residents that I had a legacy there, you know, mm -hmm. and also with my children. Uh, and that that's a really substantial legacy. And, and it is, as you, as you so well note in your book, the, the almost metastasizing power of this work uh, to influence other people. So again, a huge thank you for being on the podcast and for all of your sensational work to help us just be better human beings. Really appreciate it. Thank you yeah. so much for having me and um, highlighting the work and getting it out to more people. That's really what it's about. So I hope it's helpful. Right. Good. Thanks, Christine. Thank you. Oh, uh, let, I want to just, where can people find you? And you do offer a lot of options for people. Oh. If they want to get engaged in this work, you yeah. can work with Christine. Tell us where we can find you and, and, uh, and avail ourselves of your expertise. So I have a website, it's just christineforath.com, and there's some articles on there, uh, some video links and some resources, uh, recommended resources for others. There's an assessment as well linked to that. So that's probably the best place uh, to, to find more information on these topics. Good. Well, I'm going to encourage a lot of people to hire you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and work Appreciate with you. And I mean that. Yeah. Yeah. So thank again, you. thanks so much. Thank you for having me. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.